One of the things that strikes me as I read the Psalms, it strikes me of how David often, or whoever was writing this, that particular Psalm, often viewed themselves as a victim. And you know, was asking God to basically show some vengeance toward, toward his enemies. And there were other times in which the psalmist would accept responsibility, realize their, their culpability in, in sin. I mean, think about how we retell our own stories. You know, you're sitting down with a friend, you're kind of recasting past event in your own life. Are you ever aware enough to see how we often will use these stories to show ourselves maybe as a victim or maybe even as a hero? One of the things that the Lord has been speaking to me about is how I retell my stories. You know, me, of course, being the central character and me either being a victim or the hero. It's hard to really be objective when it comes to ourselves, is it not? Uh, and the fact is, we all do that. But when we read through the book of Acts, and particularly with this story about Paul preaching at the synagogue in Antioch, I am struck by the fact that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, took great pains to take eyewitness testimony to what had taken place. He did the same with the gospel that, that bears his name. And as a result of that, and by the fact that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, we can be confident that there's a great degree of objectivity to what is talked about in Acts, in the whole book. And knowing that causes me to be even more amazed at this story and the other stories in the book of Acts, but about how Paul and Barnabas responded to the opposition that they faced. We pick up the last section of the Apostle Paul's sermon in Acts 13, and he gives a message in the synagogue, and he's asked to come back. And it says that many people responded positively to that message of the gospel, so much so, it says the, the whole town was following them around, wanting to hear more but not so with the Jews. Let's all stand as we look at our story. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles." For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. And they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So first of all, let me say that we try to make it a regular thing here at Christ Community to go through the Bible verse by verse. We don't uh, try not to take things out of context. Uh, we try to let the Bible speak for itself and in doing so, we can't avoid difficult topics or topics that people may not 
typically talk about in church because it's right there in the passage. So we have to deal with it. And in that, we trust the Spirit of God to work in us and to give his people what they need in the midst of that. Amen? We trust God to do that. Our passage here says that the Jews were filled with jealousy. Now, because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have the advantage that as Luke writes, he knows what was in the heart of these people. I mean, when you and I have a conflict, we might assume that we know what is in the heart of a person, but at best we can guess. Here, they knew what was in the heart of the Jews, and it was jealousy. They were jealous because of the overwhelming receptivity of the Gentiles to the gospel. Now, remember, the Jews were not historically open to the Gentiles, having access to God without following the law. That was not going to happen according to a Jew. But Paul comes along, and he claims that there's now a universal application of the gospel for Jew or Gentile. He's claiming that through the gospel alone, a person can have a relationship with God, be made right with God. It doesn't matter what their affiliation, background, you can have access to God. So what do you think happened to these Gentiles when they heard that? Constantly shut out, now they hear God opening his arms the response was tremendous. The Jews claimed that they were the ones that had acceptance with God because of Judaism. And so they became jealous. They were jealous at the success that Paul and Barnabas were having, that people were responding so positively to them. Is this not a common human thing, jealousy, especially when it comes to ministry. Nobody knows jealousy better than other ministries, leaders, right? They look at so-and-so over here or so-and-so over there, and, you know, we'll start criticizing, right? That's why I think instead of us throwing barbs and pot shots, we ought to pray for other ministries. You ought to pray for John Lindell, largest church in the region, gets more criticized than any other minister in town, Right? Now, you're going to tell me that none of that has to do with jealousy? I think jealousy has a lot to do with it. I'm not saying I agree with everything, but why don't we support one another? We're on the same team, right? And why don't we pray for somebody like that? That God, in the barrage of criticism, that such a man would be able to stand strong. The Jews not only had evil motives with their jealousy, but they also demonstrated evil actions. Our passage tells us they, they contradicted Paul. It didn't matter whether it was true or not. They would throw out these assertions to you know, try to throw some shade on what Paul and Barnabas were saying. They also reviled him. That means that they slandered Paul and his message. I suppose the charges would sound a little bit like, you know, this gospel stuff that he's saying, it's not God. That's some made-up thing over here. You need Judaism, right? I mean, he's just lying to you with all this stuff. Don't listen to this guy. He's a fake. Slander. 
Needless criticism, right? Never helps, never heals, right? Consider singer and pop star Billy Joel. Most of us know many of his hits. But according to an interview in New York Magazine lately, Joel has admitted that he's rarely satisfied with his music. And do you know that he hasn't made an album in 25 years? And you know the reason why? One of the biggest reasons? Criticism. People didn't like his music. He got criticized for his music. So in order to avoid the criticism, I just won't make music anymore. Hmm. You know, if you're going to endure in the face of opposition, we have to find our security other than in the opinions of other people. I'm not saying it won't hurt, okay? I'm not saying it won't bother us. But when you're criticized, man, you gotta, you got to go on your knees quick and find where your security is. I think one of the reasons the Apostle Paul and Barnabas were able to have a sustaining ministry is they realized that Christ was the key to their endurance, so the acceptance that Christ provided them, the unconditional love in Christ. So really, persecution, opposition, criticism was an opportunity to find out once again, Lord, fill my heart. Jealousy fueled the slander. There are multiple causes for jealousy. It could be money. We often get jealous of somebody because of their money. It could be because of outward appearance of somebody. Uh, it could be because we think that somebody, you know, suffers less than what we think they deserve to suffer, and we suffer more than how we think we should suffer, and we get jealous of other people. Paul realized that Slander was not going to distract him. And the reason was is because the ministry is not about him. He was here to do a mission. He was here to give a message. And the message was not Paul. It was not about him. It was not about his reputation. Christ must increase and I must what? Decrease. Decrease. The more we live in light of this truth. I think the less jealous we get of others and the less the criticism will impact us because we know where our security resides and what our mission is. I'm not claiming you won't get hurt because we all do and it'll bother us, but we quickly have to run to where our security is found. Now I'll admit, sometimes it's tough Sometimes it's like wrestling with the angel like Jacob did, but you wrestle however much you need to wrestle and you find your security in Christ and him alone. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Why was it important to go to the Jew first. Well, we've talked about this before, that the Jews provided the delivery system through the Old Testament, through Judaism, to bring Jesus, the Messiah, to the world. Throughout Jewish history, God had promised the Messiah. Romans eleven twenty six 26 says, the deliverer will come from Zion. The Jewish religion provided the backdrop with all of the sacrifices by 
bulls and goats, they were temporary. They were a forerunner. They were a picture of what was to come. But in Christ, there's an eternal, perfect sacrifice. When you understand what took place in the Old Testament, it gives further definition to the sacrifice of Christ. Without the Old Testament, it's like the sacrifice of Christ is in black and white. With the Old Testament, it's in vivid color. We see it in its true picture, authentic way. Cannot take out that history of it. Now in Christ, we have an eternal sacrifice. So there was, there was purpose there for the Old Testament. We've talked about that many times. We see Paul, though, first going to the synagogues throughout his ministry, such as in Acts 14, 2 through 6, when he was in Iconium. And we read this as a part of that. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. You have to be very careful when you pronounce these words, all right? It doesn't matter if you pronounce it correctly. You just want it to sound like it's correct, okay? All right, all right. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Going to the synagogue. He did the same in Corinth. He did the same in Athens. He did the same in Ephesus going to the Jews, going to the synagogue. Now, though Paul said he was an apostle to the Gentiles in Galatians 2.7, that was not a statement of exclusivity. It was simply recognizing his calling, his focus. And when Paul, in Acts 13.47, says he and Barnabas are now turning to the Gentiles... We have to look at that as a specific statement made about Antioch, where the Jews rejected the gospel. Because we know, and these passages I already mentioned, he went, he continued to go to the synagogues first. So he's not saying he will no longer give the gospel to the Jews, but in Antioch, they had their chance. In Antioch, they heard it, they rejected it, now I'm going to the Gentiles. In Acts 13, 47, Luke makes an interesting application when he quotes from Isaiah 49, 6. Israel was to be light for the Gentiles, but since it did not fulfill that role, God was going to send Jesus as the messenger. And now that Jesus is gone, God sends the apostles, the disciples, and us to share the light. We read this in 2 Corinthians, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So all of us are on mission to shine in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Say, well, I don't know what I'm on the earth for. Well, you're on the earth for to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Every one of us. You can be a mailman, you can be a lawyer, you can be a clerk at Walmart. You got the same ultimate calling of your life. A housewife, a mother, we give light about Jesus Christ. 
Now, lest we think that Paul was arbitrarily rejecting the Jews, we are told that these Jews, and by the way, it was not all of the Jews because we know that many of them believed. It was a part of the Jews when he, they talk of the Jews. Most commentators think it was probably the religious leaders when it says the Jews who rejected him. But nevertheless, these Jews were to bear responsibility. They were culpable in their rejection of the gospel. Paul says, they have thrust it aside and judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. What an interesting way to say it. By seeing themselves unworthy, in other words, they don't consider themselves good candidates for the gospel. They don't see any merit in the offer of salvation. They don't see the need. And does that not describe many people today? Right? I mean, you meet many people who will throw up intellectual arguments against God, whether it's God's existence or the Bible. You meet people who've been hurt by the church or hurt by a relative who was a Christian and therefore they throw God out. Or others who just think the offer of the gospel is simply too fantastic. Why? Because their sins have created such a big pile, there is no way that that could just be gone. But in the end, none of these hurts None of these arguments, none of this unbelief can deal with the sin problem because we still have a problem. I mean, the man who jumps from a 20-story building saying, I just don't believe in gravity is like the man who says, I don't believe in God to take care of my sins because that man who jumps from the building will in a few moments Find that reality has a funny way of ignoring your arguments and your unbelief and your hurts and your claims. Here's the testimony of one who walked around with Jesus. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has the life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have the life. Could it be any clearer? It's not whoever has an Assembly of God background, whoever has a Southern Baptist background, whoever's Pentecostal, no, whoever is Calvinist, whoever's Arminian. No, it's whoever has the Son. Let's not complicate it. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, drove them out of their district. I remember meeting once when we our church first started and drove them out. Just The story has little to do with the sermon, but I thought it was funny. So if it's funny, it's worth giving in a sermon, right? This lawyer that kind of set up, helped us set up our bylaws, his father was a pastor. I won't tell you the denomination, but his father was a pastor. And in an all-church meeting, he said that the board picked his father up because they were so upset with things he was saying and carried him out of the building. 
to end the meeting. Carried him out of the building. <laughs> Drove him out of the district. <laughs> Whoa, baby. I've had a lot of conflicts, but never had that happen. So thank you, past elders. <laughs> One thing we have to realize here. Here's, let's just state the obvious, okay? We cannot expect in any ministry endeavor that we are entitled to acceptance from everybody, that we are entitled to success, that we are entitled to great reviews. <laughs> there will always be conflict and opposition. There's hardly a week that goes by that I don't get a call from another pastor in town. Can we sit down and talk? Here's a conflict. Here's a problem. There will always be conflict and opposition. God promises, God promises us that we have acceptance with him. But I want you to notice those kinds of promises are never attributed to other people. We're never promised acceptance with others except heaven. Okay? On earth, there's going to be problems. There's going to be opposition. Now, we see in these passages, in this passage in verses 48 through 51, two different responses. One, there was acceptance from the Gentiles. I mean, they were, they were exuberant to receive the gospel. And then there was rejection from the Jews. Again, not all of them, but probably the Jewish leaders. The Gentiles were glad. They rejoiced in the gospel. We're told that when Rembrandt painted his famous portrayal of the crucifixion, in the picture, he inserted a man who resembled him, put his face on the body at the foot of the cross. Most think he was expressing the idea that he too was one of the guilty parties. See, the Gentiles, I think, were readily aware of their guilt of sin. And when somebody comes along and says, here's the ultimate sacrifice to forgive you of your sin, you would be an idiot to reject that. And this was not some blind proclamation. This was a guy who rose from the dead. I would think that he has the corner on the market when it comes to eternal life. You're in the grave three days. You rise from the dead. I'm going to listen to that guy. And yet, it was this Jesus and this gospel that the Jews scornfully rejected. There's a phrase here, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It gives quite a statement, perhaps even a definitive statement, that God is active to quicken the hearts of people in order for them to come to faith. Now, there are many who reject such notions based upon their past affiliation or teaching. Now, instead of seeing this through typically, you know, theological perspectives of Calvinism or Arminianism, perhaps we ought to try to take our blinders off and just let the word of God speak for itself and see the big picture here and answer this question. 
Who is it that initiates and sustains our salvation? Because that is the question that is being begged here. Because when you are dead in your sins, I don't think you have a lot to do with initiating much of anything from a spiritual aspect. A dead dog on the road is not going to help itself. It will take a resurrection. There is a passage in Ephesians chapter 1 that if you think that this was strong in Acts, well, hold on to your horses. Ephesians 1, chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I mean, that right there is an unbelievable statement to start with, first of all. In Christ, I have everything I need. I don't need a second blessing, a second experience to give me something that's missing at salvation because in Christ, I have everything. Every blessing in Jesus. What else do I need besides him? Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us. Wait a minute, I thought that word wasn't in the Bible, but there it is. So, you know, we have to deal with it. We have to put it somewhere. There, there, there's some way that we have to interpret that. How do we deal with that? He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Well, you can trip all over this passage, but let's realize one, a couple things. First of all, predestination is not God choosing us because he knew in the future that we would choose him. That's not what it means. Such a, a notion makes man the initiator of the salvation act, and that's not the case. Predestination is not God choosing men for hell. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Whatever predestination means, it involves us being adopted as sons of God. It's God's predetermined plan that we would have a loving union with him. In verse four, it says God chose us. After God chose us, he predestines us or makes us a son, a part of his family. That refers to the goal or the destiny for which he chooses. And God chooses to put us in a position of being a family member. Here's the beauty of this truth. The incredible reality of Ephesians 1 is that our union with the Father, check this out, is his choosing his initiative, his plan, according to the purpose of his will. You know what this says? You are not an illegitimate child of God. You are not some unplanned spiritual birth. God chose you, and you are a child of God according to his will. And by the way, do you really think that with God's omniscience, 
he wouldn't know about your sin in the future? He knew all about your sin. When he chose you before the foundation of the world, he knew every sin that you would commit. And if you think that you can somehow lose what God has promised, somehow lose what we have in Christ, then just think about this. Did God really know beforehand what we would do? Yes, he did. He knew every sin that you would commit, and he still chose you. (laughs) That is amazing. Many of you, if I said, if you had to do it over again, would you marry the same person? Don't answer that question. (laughs) Would you still do it? This is what God says. I know how messy this is, and I still choose it. The initiative of salvation and the keeping of our salvation is all God's doing, not ours. We didn't do anything to deserve it. We are not responsible to secure it, so how can we lose it? We are to live in light of it. We are to live consistent with who we are. That is true. And we will be rewarded accordingly. Every aspect is, of our salvation is born out of the purpose and the will and the plan of God. And that is accomplished to what? To give him glory. In verses 5, 9, and 11 out of Ephesians 1. Salvation is ascribed to his will. In verses 6 and 7, it is ascribed to his grace. In verse 7, to his blood. In verse 4, to his love. In verse 9, to his good intention. In verse 11, to his purpose. And in verses 12 and 14, to the praise of his glory. Salvation is not the result of the will or the merit or the love of any of us. Our union is initiated by God and of his choosing. And God has saved us in order that he might be glorified and human beings have to say, I didn't have anything to do with that. God's grace is so great. It covers me. Yes, even me with all of my sin. Our union with him is rooted in God's eternal purpose, and grace. You know what this means? That means your adoption is not fragile. You cannot take back the adoption papers. It is not tenuous. It is not uncertain. God will not adopt you and then find out what a scoundrel you really are and then say, you know what? I'm going back on that. I'm taking that person back. They are not worthy. They're going to be unadopted. He already knew. And he adopted you anyway. He knows we are all unworthy. And he chose us and predestined us for adoption. This is firm, sure, and unshakable. And the Gentiles, they got a whiff of this. They got a glimpse of this truth. They were aware of their sin. They're like, we'll take that deal. And the Jews were infuriated. How could Gentiles be saved, given the fact that they didn't keep the law? So the Jews, 
arouse the passions of other people. It says, some influential women and men. You know, the movers and the shakers, who they hoped would squelch the message of Paul and Barnabas. Listen, with our sovereign God, I mean, it looks like, you know, they got one over on Paul and Barnabas. God knew exactly what he was doing. Because this is the plan of God is to take the persecution of the apostles and other Christians and to spread the message elsewhere. It was a way of God saying, you know, you're done here, now you're going to be moving over here. All they did was drive them out of the city so they could go elsewhere and spread the gospel. Jesus even gave them that instruction in Matthew 10, 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Uh, Jesus also told his disciples that when they are persecuted, this is in Luke 21, 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. My dear brothers and sisters, when you are reviled, when you are unnecessarily criticized, let us rejoice that that is an opportunity for us to be stripped from human approval. And then we can focus, we can focus upon our Savior with clarity and single-mindedness. Less of me, more of him. Listen, I know I'm not fooling anybody. That's excruciating. It hurts, okay? The criticism, I'm not, I'm not making light of it, but it's necessary. I mean, why is it that in persecuted countries, the church is thriving? And in America, in many pockets, the church has everything it could ever need, and we're fat and lazy, spiritually speaking. Persecution has a way of, of wringing out those unnecessary parts and letting us see the things that are really important when it comes to living this Christian life. As practiced by the Jews in New Testament times, the gesture of dusting off their feet, it means they considered the people in the town to be pagans. So most commentators think that here in Acts, it may indicate that when Paul and Barnabas were doing this, they knew that they did all that they could and they had no further responsibility to these people that refused the gospel. They refused to repent. We're just going to move on. Verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Here are the clear declarations that Paul and Barnabas, and apparently those who had received the gospel, are filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, here's a group of landmines that I've dealt with before in the, uh, I think it's around Acts 8 and dealing with the Samaritans. But let me just say it again that when it comes to, let's just stick with the book of Acts. This term, filling of the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, it's mentioned six times in the book of Acts. One time, it deals with tongues. The other five times, it refers to Paul speaking to public officials, to the disciples speaking the word with boldness, to Paul being healed after his salvation, and to Paul confronting someone who opposed the Scriptures. And then here, in verse 52, being filled with joy while being persecuted. I think we could say, if we're going to draw theology out of the book of Acts to filling of the Spirit, all right, it's going to have a multiplicity of fruit. Not one thing, but many possibilities for what happens when one is filled with the Spirit. 
and mainly it empowers us for the situation that is in front of us, that we will operate in the power of God. Multifaceted endowment. And in this case, the context of this joy, the context of this filling is persecution. It's opposition. What do we not see in Paul and Barnabas? We don't see a defensiveness in the midst of the reviling. Now, wait a minute. You guys continue to say this stuff. I got a good lawyer. I will sue your rear end. You know, you, you can't say that of me. I've got a reputation to protect, right? We don't see this kind of slavish acceptance of others that they were going after. We don't see that. What we see are people who are sure of their calling, resolute in their mission, joyful in their spirits. Give us some more of that. Sophia Cavaletti is a researcher who's done a lot of seminal work with the study of spirituality in young children. Interesting. She finds that children often have an amazing perception that surpasses what they have been taught, even in their own homes. One three-year-old girl raised in an atheistic family with no church contact at all, not one Bible in the home, asked her father this question. Three years old. Where did the world come from? Well, he answered in strictly naturalistic scientific terms. That means just, you know, a material cause, no God. Then he added, well, there are some people who say that all this comes from a very powerful being and they call him God. And at this, three years old, this little girl started dancing around the room with joy. You know what she said? I knew what you told me wasn't true. It's him. It's him. Three years old. That's the kind of joy from the Gentiles who first believed. Lord, help us to have that joy of salvation, our first love. The psalmist said this, we have put more joy, you have put more joy, speaking of God, in my heart than they have. All the world, with all their grain, all their wine, just fill in the blanks. Anything else that the world has to offer, God, you put more joy in my heart. Mark 10, 15 says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What does that mean? We have to recognize our need. We have to have faith that he does exist, just like that little girl. There's no entering the, the kingdom without humility, without an acknowledgement of our need, and without an acknowledgement of how great God is to give us this grace. And there are some of you here today who you've attended church, maybe you've even been baptized, and if you were to die right now, you would not be with God in heaven. Why? Because you've never trusted Christ. You've trusted your religious works. You trusted maybe your family, but you've never committed your life to Christ. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son 
does not have the life. I would be derelict in my duty if I didn't plainly show you the options. Let's pray.